Uh, kids, question for you. Do you know what CPR is? You've got a kind of, yeah? What do you reckon, Jade? Yep. Yes. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Pretty close. <laughs> it's, it's when uh, somebody, has their heart has stopped, they're not breathing, and they need to get air into their lungs, right? Because if they don't get air into their lungs, they don't get oxygen into their bloodstream, you know, that they'll die. And so uh, it, it used to be, not so much anymore, but it used to be closely tied with putting your mouth over somebody else's mouth and breathing oxygen into their lungs to fill their lungs up, to get air in there, and then, you know, making those compressions to keep cycling that air through the lungs. Because in the case that you need to apply CPR, it's because somebody's dead or, or, or very close to being dead. They need that help. They need that outside force to come in and to give them breath, to give them life. And the thing is, in the Bible, uh, when we see the word spirit, that is literally the word for breath. Especially in the Old Testament, when we see the word breath, it means spirit. Because these things are tied closely together. You think you put your, yourself in the, in the minds of a, 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 an ancient person. If somebody's not breathing, they're dead. So uh, they very closely associate the idea of the spirit, your, your, your being, with the idea of breath. And so this morning we're talking about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit... And this idea of the Holy Spirit is, is it's life-giving. It's breath for God's people. It's a spiritual breath that needs to come into people's life. And it is though we need divine CPR. We need God to send His Spirit into us, to, to push His breath into us so that we might come to life. And there's a great picture of that in Ezekiel. We didn't read that part this morning, but... Back in Ezekiel, there's another great picture of a valley of dry bones. And uh, Ezekiel is told in this vision of the valley of dry bones to prophesy to the bones, prophesy to the spirit, to the breath. And the, and the breath comes and enlivens these bones and they grow muscles and this whole great host of people stand up and come to life because God puts his spirit in them. That's a foretaste of what it is to belong to God, to be part of his people, to be people made alive in Jesus Christ. But in the church, unfortunately, there is a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. And I don't know where all of you come from with your backgrounds and experiences uh, and what kind of preconceptions you have. So I might tread on some of your toes, but it's for good reason, because we want to see what the Bible has to say. Um, you know, you go into some churches and you don't hear about the Holy Spirit. You could go to church for three months and only hear it mentioned once. And it's as if they live as if the Holy Spirit doesn't exist and has no bearing on their faith or their discipleship. But on the other kind of end of the spectrum, there are some churches you go into and you would think that Jesus was a, just a side thing, just a, a side note in what it means to be a Christian because they, they're always talking about the Holy Spirit and never about God the Father and God the Son. I'm sure some of us have been burned by bad teaching about the Holy Spirit with, with misleading slash nonsense, like you have to speak uh, in, in um, uh, gibberish tongues to show that you have the Holy Spirit and that you're a true believer. Or uh, there's uh, misleading teaching, like if you have true faith, you'll be miraculously healed of any illnesses or injury you have. And obviously, if you're not healed, you don't have enough faith. 
um, in, the whole, in the work of the Holy Spirit. Or there's um, this teaching about you can tell that the Holy Spirit is present because of the way that you feel in a moment. Or perhaps that the Holy Spirit is present because a, a particular preacher is, uh, has a gravitas or a charisma in the pulpit. Each of these ideas is not found in the Bible. And they're in fact things that end up burdening us and shackling us in our faith because we end up seeing these things, um, they burden us with guilt and shame and despair because if we're not feeling a certain way or if we're not speaking a certain way or if we're not being healed from our illnesses, we start to think that we're not, we don't belong to Jesus, we're not Christians. So we don't want to kind of be loaded up with these shackles that weight us down and cr create despair and confusion in our lives. But what does God say about the Holy Spirit? Well, we can't talk about everything right now this morning because we're focusing on this one passage. But this, this passage is going to tell us the basics of what we need to know. Not just the basics, the crux of what we need to know about the work of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus is in this discipleship intensive. He's teaching his disciples about how to, be, how to live as disciples once Jesus is not there bodily with them. Right? So he's giving them the essential things they need to know for what life is going to be like when he's left and he sent his Holy Spirit. So that should be pretty important for us to take note of. If we, if we want to know how the Holy Spirit is meant to work in the life of the church and in, in, in the world, what we should expect, what, um, then this is where we'll go. This is, this is the best place to go because Jesus is laying it out. The clearest part of, as far as I understand, the whole scriptures, the clearest part uh, where it teaches us about the role of the Holy Spirit is this part right here. And so we should take note. Not only that, but because uh, this is part of a repetition of, of some things that Jesus has said before. And the key with repetition is that if it's repeated a bunch of times in the Bible, it's important. Pay attention to it. The repetition is to draw your attention to it. And here we have another repetition of something that Jesus has been saying about the Holy Spirit. All right. Let's just see. I got a little bit off, off track there. But so this is great encouragement to you if you're a disciple of Jesus already. But if you're not a disciple of Jesus yet, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, don't worry, this is still something, this is still helpful to know, this is still good to know, and there's, there's a lot to say here that will affect you as a person who's not yet a Christian. So, it's good stuff to know. It's still good news here for you to hear. I've divided the passage into three parts. Each part gives us an important insight into the role and power of the Holy Spirit. Just to repeat that. Each part gives us an important insight into the role and power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first one. The first one, the first part of the passage in verses, uh, the second half of verse 4 to verse 7, is that the Holy Spirit is our advantage. It is to our advantage that Jesus goes away and the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples at the Last Supper, as I already mentioned. Judas, the betrayer, has already left uh, the meal to go and betray him, to do the deed, get his silver. And Jesus is speaking to the remaining 11 disciples. And Jesus has dropped the bad news on them that, look, mate, it's going to be rough. 
you are going to be hated by the world because you belong to me. Because, because they are disciples of Jesus, they're going to be hated. It's not a guarantee. They're not always going to be hated by everyone. But Jesus says, if the world hates you, don't worry, they hated me first. They're going to persecute you. They're going to kick you out of churches or synagogues. They're going to um, give you a really hard time. But they're going to do that because they, they hate Jesus. So it's a bit of kind of bad news in a way. It's, it's, it's sad. It's, you're signing up for potential um, hurt and even potential death at the hands of those who hate Jesus. But Jesus, in the middle of that, he had said, as we saw last week, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So even in the midst of the trials, the, the persecution, even in the midst of the hatred of the world, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, will come and confirm the truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit will be an indis indispensable part of, of discipleship after Jesus has left the earth. And, and that is important because if we're just left to our own devices, we wouldn't be able to stick it out. We wouldn't be able to continue on. We would despair and we would fall away because it, the going would be too tough. But the question in the disciples' mind at this point is probably, why haven't you told us about this stuff earlier? Why haven't you given us a a bigger picture of who the Holy Spirit is and about this persecution stuff earlier? Well, Jesus preemptively answers that question in our passage. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is going away. And they need to be prepared for what is to come. And not only that, it's better for Jesus to go away. It's better for Jesus to physically leave them and no longer be with them. How does this work? Surely it's better off. Those disciples are sitting there with the God in flesh, incarnate, who can do all these amazing miracles, who has uh, been, who's been opening the eyes of the blind, who's been feeding people, who has been teaching the words of God. Surely it's better for him to stick around and to stay with them. But Jesus is saying, no, it's better that I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come. So there's something qualitatively better about Jesus bodily not being with us and the Holy Spirit being with us. You know, it would, we would might think, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if today I could hop on a plane and go somewhere and I could see Jesus face to face and sit at his feet, hear him preach or ask him specific questions, you know. Those questions that we all have, you know, should I marry this person? Should I buy this house? Should I follow this career path? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get that divine connection and have those answered for us straight away? It would be nice, but there's something better. There's something better than being able to have those kinds of questions answered. One commentator puts it this way. The question, the choice is not between Christ present and Christ absent, but between Christ present in body and Christ present in the Holy Spirit. The latter is far better 
Jesus said, explaining that when the Spirit came, he would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It was better that Jesus was present through his Spirit than present bodily. And so that's why he needed to go away, so that he could send the Holy Spirit to be present with his people everywhere and not just in one place. You remember the guy who, uh, who wanted to get healed and so they went and they, they couldn't get into the house because there were so many people crowding around Jesus to see him. And so they went up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof to lower the paralytic down. You imagine that times uh, a billion. If there's a billion Christians on the earth trying to meet Jesus, how much, how, you know, imagine the bookings in advance are just going to be so long. Um, but no, because Jesus has not here bodily with us, but he sent his spirit, that means that his spirit is with us everywhere, all the time. We have Christ with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Christ is here with us today because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We have become the temple of God so that the God indwells his people everywhere. He goes with us wherever we go. And the Holy Spirit, uh, the Old Testament, sorry, looked forward to this coming of the Holy Spirit as we read in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. There's a, there's a little nod to baptism there, the sign of being cleansed from our sins and washed. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Soft hearts. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. He will send his spirit and put his spirit within his people so that they might be, learn to be obedient and to, and to walk with God. Jesus is sending this spirit. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing gift. It's an amazing prophecy coming true. Yes, there is sorrow that Jesus will bodily go away, but there is great joy in the fact that the Holy Spirit is continuing the ministry of Jesus across time and space. In our second section we see the Holy Spirit in the world, how the Holy Spirit acts and works in the world in verses 8 to 11. This answers the question for us, well, what will the Holy Spirit do in the world once he arrives? We've already been told a few times in the previous passages that uh, the Holy Spirit will confirm the words of Jesus to the disciples, teaching them. But here Jesus indicates that the Holy Spirit will not only just be doing stuff kind of, if we could put it this way, inside the church. Not, you know, the Holy Spirit's not just going to be working at Bible study and uh, at church on Sunday morning and uh, in your devotional quiet time. No, the Holy Spirit is going to be active in the world, outside of our religious activity. Let's have a look from verse 8. And when he comes, this is the Spirit... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, so the, the Spirit is going to bring conviction to the world. This 
passage follows on from comments about how the world will hate Christians. And so, if we're thinking in the, about the world, talking about the world, we're talking about the same world that hates Jesus. The people, the institutions that set themselves against God, the, the vast majority of, you know, the mob, the man, the system, the, the populace. The Holy Spirit is going to be convicting, convincing, exposing these things to the world. It's this sense of exposure. He's going to reveal the truth. He's going to reveal the world uh, to the world the nature of sin, judgment and righteousness. He's going to bring correction in some sense in each of these areas. And to press the point, Jesus goes on to explain each of these a little bit more. So let's look briefly at each of these things that he explains concerning sin, righteousness and justice. So the world is going to be convicted concerning sin. Convicted concerning sin. What do we mean when we use the word sin? Uh, I think if you uh, hear in kind of, you know, if you read news articles or something that, that talk about what Christians call sin, you, you get the idea that people understand sin to be this kind of massive moral failure. And that is, that is true. Sin is a massive moral failure. So, yeah, let's name some big ticket ones, you know, murdering somebody. Yeah, obviously, sin, massive moral failure. Um, you know, defrauding people, obviously a sin, massive moral failure. But the, the sin is not just these massive big things, you know, oh, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't stolen from anybody. Sin is the, is everything which is counter to God. Every action or even inaction which is counter to God. So, for instance, God says, um, God, God calls people to worship Him. So, if you have not lived a life of worship towards God, then you have lived a life in sin, right? So, that's, an, that's something that you should do that you didn't do. Or uh, God calls us to love our neighbour, if we have not shown love to somebody in some way, we've done something that's selfish rather than kind and generous, then we have, we have that's, a, that's a sin of omission. We've not done something that we should have done. And then there are the sins of commission, where we do things which are, that are rebellion towards God, that are wrong. These are things that are morally wrong. And, and when we think of morals, we might be thinking of those big th ticket things like not stealing, not killing people, not um, those, those, those big things, but it's that plus all of the small things that we do that are immoral, even down to the way that we think. So when we entertain, when we think about, oh, I'd, you know, I would never kill that person, but man, I'm so angry with them right now, I wish I could. Or I would never cheat on my spouse but if I was I would do it with that person it's that level sin starts in the heart sin can be entertained in the mind and even long before it becomes a reality in the world where we act out our sin our rebellion against God our moral failures it starts in a heart that is turned against God so that is sin it is God not obeyed, it is God not loved, it is uh, God not honoured, 
It is the actions towards those around us or the inactions towards those around us that are failures. And the word failures kind of implies a passivity, but sin is not passive. Hopefully it never, it doesn't get to that. Sometimes we are so ingrained in our sin that it does become a passive thing. We just live in it and wallow in it and it is just the way of our life. But the Holy Spirit comes to expose that sin, to expose the sin of the world, to expose our inexcusable guilt. We need to come face to face with our sin and understand the depth of it. We need to understand this sin. And Jesus says here, he's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world concerning sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. And you might think these things don't naturally go together, but let's think about what is the kind of the greatest sin that you could commit? That's not believing in Jesus. We live in a world where we've been kind of trained to think that um, there's kind of neutral ground, that there is, there's Christians, there's those, uh, there's this kind of neutral ground, and then everybody can kind of have things their own way. They got, they get to choose for themselves. You know, the way they want to live, each to their own. That's not the way that God views the world. God views the world in a very binary sense. You are either with Him or you are against Him. And so, if you're not a believer, I need to bring this to your attention. That by standing back from God and saying, look, um, that's nice that you have that over there, but that's not for me. It's not just you passively kind of sitting back and not and um and and the way that you are kind of sitting back and saying that's not for me is you saying i don't want life it's you sitting back and saying i don't want to serve the god who made me it's it's you sitting back and saying i don't want the source of all goodness it's not a passive thing to to reject jesus is to reject god is to reject everything good. It is to reject the author of life. It is to is to reject the order of um, the, the, you know, to reject morality. If you have any desire to live a good life, you cannot reject Jesus. He's the source of all goodness. So that is the the greatest sin. The Holy Spirit comes to the world to can to show the world. Look. You are sinning as you reject Jesus. And this is why people, like, uh, it's not uncommon for people who are atheistic to uh, say, look, I don't believe in God and I hate him. You know, that he, that there are those who, uh, who don't believe in him, but they are absolutely, um, they're absolutely angry about God. This one that they don't believe in. They're absolutely opposed to him and frustrated by him, even though they say they don't believe in him. We know it, the, world, the Holy Spirit exposes to the world the way that um, they have sinned against God when they reject him and reject his, his sent one, Jesus. Now, not everybody is going to um, become a Christian when they are convicted of sin, when they have their sin revealed to them. Usually people go one of two ways. They either are convicted of their sin and they actually want Jesus. They say, they go to the source of life. They say, take away my sin. Or... They reject him and his idea of sin. 
and they say, no, nah, and they try and bury it, they try and push it down, they try and cover it over and kind of pretend like that sin in their life is not an issue. Or perhaps a third way is, I see this problem in my life of this sin, the mistakes I've made, the bad things I've done, now I'm going to go out and try and uh, outdo them with good works. I'm going to go and serve in a charity, I'm going to go and uh, be really nice, I'm going to be a really good employee, I'm going to do good deeds to try and cover up, to try and undo, to try and atone for the bad things we've done in life. The Holy Spirit also comes to convict concerning righteousness. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. So the Holy Spirit needs to show the world what true righteousness looks like. Because there is true and counterfeit righteousness, right? Righteousness being that kind of the, the rightness, the goodness uh, uh, of the, the kind of the moral quality of goodness and perfection in, in a person. So what does a counterfeit righteousness look like? Well, there's a great uh, example, uh, Boyce, if that name means anything to you, gives a great example of this. He says that uh, one time in, uh, I can't remember which, I can't remember which war it was, but in one, during one of the wars, they sent board games to the soldiers on the front line, so they had something to do while they were sitting around waiting for battles. And one of the board games that they got was uh, Monopoly. And you know how Monopoly has the kind of the fake currency in it? But in their camp, um, they ended up basically using the fake currency as their real currency. You know, they would bet and play cards with, their, with the fake Monopoly currency. Um, and as these things go, there's somebody who won big and got most of the, of the money. Um, but they would use it to trade and stuff around the camp with this Monopoly money. But then when they get to go home after the war, the Monopoly money was useless to them. It's just paper. It was, it was, fine. It was, it was fine to be used in the, in the circumstance of, that they were in, but it doesn't have real, true value. Within the system, it seemed valuable, but it was actually worth nothing. It was just flimsy pieces of paper. And that's what our counterfeit righteousness is like. The counterfeit righteousness that we make for ourselves inside an imaginary system that we have built for it. We look out into the world and we see the kind of the new pagan righteousness that's being developed uh, where, um, you know, you have to have this fake righteousness of saying the right things, approving the right people, um, speaking out about the right things. These pers- if you have the right perspectives, you apparently have some kind of righteousness in this new system. But there are more pervasive firms, terms of this, even if you are not kind of even if you're not deceived by the, the woke um, nonsense that's going on in the world, we can still invent fake righteousnesses for ourselves. Even if, even if you, say, fall into the trap of thinking that you're a, you're a good person because you, you've got good manners and you've got a, a job, a stable job and you worked hard and you bought a house and you sent your kids to the right school and you've built this air of being a nice person, an upstanding citizen without necessarily having adopted a true righteousness. It comes in all shapes and sizes. We've seen over the last couple of years that people inventing a form of righteousness to judge themselves by. You'll see the, the people who walk around with those shirts, you know, testifying to the fact that they didn't get vaccinated, as if that somehow sets them apart as of a different 
kind, a different righteousness. We create these, these fake righteousnesses with, you know, you, you eat this diet as opposed to that diet, or you drive this car as opposed to that, or you, um, or you use this curriculum as opposed to that curriculum. You, you did wear masks, you didn't wear masks. We, we create these fake righteousnesses and then judge other people by them. But it is just fake. Uh, another great one from history is um, at some points in, in, in history in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they said that the priests couldn't wear beards. And so parishioners were given permission to tackle their priest and to forcibly shave him. <laughs> because the, the law had come down from on high that this is what priests will be like. And so there's this fake righteousness that was being implemented in the church at that time. But even now, people think that they're doing the wrong thing if they don't eat good fish on Friday or, or even in our midst if we don't pray with our eyes closed. Somehow this is a, a level of righteousness that we have developed for ourselves. But it's all monopoly money before God. It's flimsy, flimsy rubbish. And so we need the Holy Spirit to come and convict us of what true righteousness is before God. And Jesus has demonstrated it with his life. And this is, what, this is why Jesus says here, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. You see, because Jesus goes to the Father, it's like a stamp of approval on everything that he did as righteousness. He was truly righteousness. He, he went to the Father because the check cleared, because his life, death and resurrection... It was all done in true righteousness. And so if we want to see true righteousness, we need the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus. He is the picture of true righteousness, of faithful obedience to the Father, of, of laying down his life for those around him, of showing true love. He raised from the dead and went to the Father, and that should show us as a sign, that's the seal. It's the certificate of authenticity on the righteousness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to show us that. We can either hear the Holy Spirit and see the righteousness of God in Jesus, or we can reject this and keep playing with our monopoly money as if that is actually worth something. And in this third, uh, this third conviction, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the coming judgment. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son, Jesus Christ, and judgment day will be handled through Jesus. There is a judgment day coming when all will have to give an account. And God has already signaled how things are going to go down because, as he said, the ruler of this world is judged. Here Jesus is referring to Satan, the devil, the this uh, spiritual being which is opposed to God. It's not, uh, he's not opposed as like a, an equal force. They're not equal and opposing forces. Satan was, a, was an, a servant of God who rebelled against him. A powerful servant, yes, but a servant nonetheless. And he has been judged. And the fact that Jesus went to that cross and died for sin and overthrew the spiritual powers signals to us what is in store in judgment in the future. The judgment that is coming the judgment against sin. If Jesus was willing to do this, 
to overthrow Satan, how much more is he going to judge the rest of the world and set things right? He's, it, it's almost though the, if you think about a court case, usually there is a, a, a guilty verdict, if a guilty verdict is to be announced, the guilty verdict is announced and then sometime later there might be a sentencing hearing where they actually, uh, like they actually lay down uh, the, you know, how long you're going to spend in jail, you know, what are the, going to be the consequences. And so here it's, it's almost as though Jesus has announced the guilty verdict, he has toppled the ruler of this world, Satan, but in time to come, the, that sentence will actually be carried out. And the fact that this is happening is a sign to the world that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for the rest of the world. Started with, with Satan and it will go on from there. The fact that Jesus came to the world to die for sin shows that God's judgment against sin is very serious. God has to deal with it. And he does that through the perfect justice of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus atoned for our sin and dealt with it. He has overcome sin. And so for those people who belong to Jesus, there is no more condemnation for them. They are free in Christ Jesus. The judgment has been laid on Christ and he has dealt with it. But for those people who reject Jesus, they say, no thanks. They're saying, God, I want you to judge me on the basis of my own uh, character, what I bring to the table. Judge me without Jesus being involved. And how are we going to show up then? If what I said before is true, that even the way that we think we sin against God, think about, <laughs> imagine the, the, the old cliche, imagine if uh, we were to play your thoughts on the screen for the last week. How ashamed would you be of the last week, let alone the previous week and previous month and the previous years? We have sinned against God so much and we cannot stand on our own two feet before him when it comes to judgment we will fall. We need an alien righteousness. We need somebody else's righteousness to come out. Of, out. We need that CPR, the life to be breathed into us and to be brought back to life apart from sin. We need the work of God in our life. We need Jesus Christ in order to be able to face the judgment of God. Because then we can stand before him and say, Lord, I have sinned and I have fallen short, but Jesus, Jesus is picking up my tab. In the last uh, portion of this, of this, in verses 12 to 17, sorry, 12 to 15, we're told about how the Holy Spirit will be at work in the church. We've seen how the Holy Spirit will be at work in the world in general. Some people will hear it and respond and they will become Christians. They will join God's church. But there will be many who don't, who reject it and say, no, nah, I'll face God's judgment on my own. I'll deal with my sin on my own. I will make up my own righteousness. But when it comes to God's church, Jesus addresses the work of the Holy Spirit among his disciples. And as I alluded to in the opening, I said, look, Jesus is repeating some stuff here. And that should bring us to go, hang on a sec, we should really pay attention to this. This is really important. He says... I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the, Holy, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
So the bit that he's repeating is that bit in the middle. He will guide you into all the truth. Jesus has already said that several times in John. This is what the Holy Spirit will come to do. He will bring to remembrance all the things I've said to you. He will teach them what all that I have um, to say. He, and he will guide you into all the truth. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we expect among God's people. He teaches us. So even now, as you're sitting here and reading God's word and hearing it, it is through the work of the Holy Spirit that you might hear Jesus' words and be changed in your hearts because the Holy Spirit brings things to mind, teaches his disciples. The Holy Spirit will teach his disciples the things that they cannot yet bear. That leads us to think, well, hang on, what, what, he, he will declare, um, what do we say? He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will, he will declare to you things that are to come. So there's, it's almost as though there's something about the things that Jesus teaches or has said that they cannot understand in that moment, that they need to understand later. They need to be taught the truth further down the track. And that's, in fact, what we see happen in the, whole, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And it happens that as the disciples see the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes, the Old Testament, it's like a key has been given to them and they open up the Old Testament and they see this is all about Jesus. It's been testifying to Jesus this whole time. And so through the work of the Holy Spirit, they are able to go back to the Scriptures and learn so much more about who Jesus is because of this work of the Holy Spirit. They will, Holy Spirit will bring to mind Jesus' words to his disciples the Holy Spirit would bring prophetic word, for instance, through John, who, uh, in the Revelation, further down the track. The Holy Spirit would, would teach Jesus ways with applied theology, the applied theology of the New Testament, which sees the implications of what Jesus has done being worked out in the life of believers and in the church. This is all the Holy Spirit at work, lifting up the teaching of Jesus, bringing it to mind, making sure that God's church hears it and understands it. And all of this feeds into the big picture of wanting to glorify God. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit isn't here to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit is God and worthy of worship as part of God, but the Holy Spirit doesn't go around going, look at me, look at me, in the same way that Jesus says, look at me and see the Father. The Holy Spirit is, is kind of like he wants to sit in the background a little bit, so to speak, and say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is a Trinitarian work of God that he builds his church and helps his disciples, that that. The, what the Father has has been given to the Son. And the Spirit says, look at the Son. The Holy Spirit takes from Jesus and declares this truth. So what? We've seen that there is an advantage to Jesus going away because Jesus comes back to us, present with us through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus, proceeding from the Father, sent by the Son into the world to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and the Holy Spirit comes to the church to God's disciples Christians 
to teach them all that Jesus has commanded us, to bring to word, bring to mind, to lead us into all truth. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth that we have heard now from Jesus about what the Holy Spirit does. And we pray, Lord, that we might know this. Lord, keep us from getting distracted by other ideas about the Holy Spirit. Um, Please teach us the right way to think about the Holy Spirit and to interact with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you might uh, continue this work. We know that you will, but Lord, we look forward to it and we praise you for it and and we want to join you in that work as you work through us by your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, convict the world concerning sin. Please, Lord, convict the world concerning righteousness. Please, Lord, convict the world concerning judgment. But we pray, Lord, that many, many people might know the grace and mercy that is available in Jesus Christ, that they might escape judgment, that they might have their sins forgiven and they might take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that that would be our, our vision, our outlook on life, that we might live confident in Christ because the Holy Spirit is with us and, and, and teaching us and leading us. Lord, we pray that you might glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.